from the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Motherfuck Lore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Dara Cochet. And I'm Garoji McAvoy. Hey, getting on, Garoji. Yeah, I'm good. It's it's almost Halloween, um, my favourite time of year, so I'm very excited for a spooky season. Oh yeah, I love spooky season. I yeah. just, yeah, I, I love Halloween. I love the, the annual poppy debates and I love my birthday. And no, I love the annual <laughs> poppy debates. <laughs> That's so, how you know Christmas is coming, isn't it? <laughs> oh God, yeah. No, I think, yeah, I'd, I'd rather listen to, um, yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather listen to Christmas songs over and over again. I'd rather have the, uh, the annual Is Die Hard a Christmas movie debate than the poppy debates. But they are perennials, you know, it's, uh, but a better perennial of the Autumn Stroke Winter in Ireland is the Irish Book Awards. And we're absolutely delighted today to be joined by a nominee for the, in the Irish Book Awards this year in the Crime Gallery, although she wouldn't be some normally seen as a crime writer. She's one of Ireland's most outstanding novelists. Every book she writes is as meticulously plotted and carefully constructed as a Swiss watch. I just think she's brilliant. <laughs> do you think she's brilliant, Gargine? I do. I'm a big fan. This is a very big deal for me. Thank you for having me on this particular episode. And I'm going to try and play cool for the next hour <laughs> to 40 minutes. <laughs> I am, of course, referring to Louise O'Neill. Oh, that was a very nice introduction and an, ex- <laughs> and an excellent segue there. I was very impressed by how you did that. Can we I'm mark just, this not... as the first time that anyone has ever complimented Derek Segways? Because sometimes they're like weaseled right in there. He's got a, a hammer and like <laughs> several tools, power tools to wedge his point in. <laughs> no, I, 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 you, you got to sag and command of these things. It's a, it's a skill you learn as a middle child. Um, <laughs> please, I am I'm currently I'm enthralled by your new book, After the Sounds. Oh, thank you. Um, I always get a little bit nervous when I hear um, that someone who, you know, is a, speaks Irish fluently is reading it because I'm like, oh God, I hope that they they think the Irish is okay. But, it, you know, I, I did actually get like a very good friend of mine who is um, a native Irish speaker. I got him to translate it for me. So if you have any complaints, <laughs> you direct them to Trenakavukula, okay? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, no, this is a safe space. We won't have any criticisms on that. Okay. <laughs> But it's it's for for those uh, for those of you who haven't heard yet. Yeah, after the science is set on an island called Inishroon, off the coast of Cork, or you might say that um, to, to to make a reference. So recently, and recently in one of our episodes, um, Patter mentioned that he's a friend from Ackle who refers to Ireland as an island off the coast of Ackle. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just fantastic. So, but Inishroon uh, is this is an island off the off the coast uh, of of Cork, and there's. And I, some years back, there, a murder happened there. And when the when the when the, when there was the night of a large storm, without giving anything away, so you and, and we look we and and we are we are, we are drawn to the story of all the people who are involved who are on the island of the, on that particular night who how, who was affected with the, how different people's lives touch each other. And it goes into many of many of the themes that you, you address in your work in, in in different genres. You do return to some certain themes like uh, consent, control. Um, uh, power relationships mm. and and the and, and the and the and living with with trauma and it's absolutely fascinating work. Oh, thank you. That's for, that's very kind of you. Could you could you maybe tell us a little bit about the process of of writing uh, after the silence, um, mm. which I haven't read yet. It's on my Christmas list. My mom told me not to buy it yet. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> why I haven't read it. <laughs> um, well, you can tell your mother I said thank you very much yeah. as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know. I suppose when um, 
2018 was a particularly busy year for me because I had two novels out, one in March, um, Almost Love, and one in May, The Surface Breaks, which was a feminist retelling mm-hmm. of The Little Mermaid. And then the stage adaptation um, of Asking For It, uh, deb- it debuted yes. in uh, June. And I had sort of decided that I was going to take an extended social media break and I really just wanted to just get back to the actual writing because I think that, like... A lot of the work, you know, particularly when, you know, you're in publication is is the publicity and, and you know, is doing, you know, the podcast, which I enjoy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, also, I suppose, you know, the interviews and the media um, and it, it, it tends to be quite noisy, I suppose, would be the way I would put it. Um, and I just wanted to just get back to the actual writing. And I didn't know what I was going to write about. And I went to um, Anna McCarrick, which is this writers retreat centre um, in Monaghan. And I had been listening, uh, well, I had listened earlier that year to the West Cork podcast, um, which I think most people in Ireland will be familiar with because, you know, it's about the Sophie Tuscan de Plantier case, which is obviously one of the most notorious unsolved murders uh, in this country's history. But having been from West Cork and, you know, I was 11 when that murder happened, I think it left such a long shadow um, on the people of West Cork. Um, And I think as a child growing up in an area like that, where you were afforded so much freedom, like I didn't even know where the front keys to our house were, you know, um, because crime was just non-existent. Um, So I think it was just this really quite traumatising event, actually. Um, And so I I was really excited to, I don't know if excited is the right word, but I was really anxious maybe to listen to the West Cork podcast. And I think... A part of me, I think, hoped that like that the two documentary makers would have solved the crime, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I got that kind of childlike part of me. And of course, obviously, you know, things aren't tied up as neatly uh, in real life as they are in fiction. But I think afterwards, I just kept thinking about it. And it, it wasn't necessarily the case itself. I think it was more the idea of the outsider mm. and the Sassanok, you know, like the dreaded Englishman. And I suppose that kind of post-colonial tension between Ireland and, and the UK, which which was, I think, sort of bubbling under the surface. And then I think Brexit sort of brought it all back up again. Mm. And so I was really, I just mm. couldn't stop thinking about that. And then these two documentary makers who also had English accents, you know, coming into this very small, tightly knit community um, and asking questions. And, and I just thought, God, this is just ripe for like creative um, exploration. And I suppose then, you know, I the reason why I decided to... Well, actually, there was a number of reasons why I decided to set it on an island. Um, but I suppose the main reason was that when I was a child, my parents took us to Cape Clear mm. and we actually missed the last boat home. Um, and I remember feeling really panicked, which was so ridiculous because obviously, like, we just found a and b and like, went home the next day. It was not an emergency, you know? Um, but I remember having just this real sense of panic because I think it was the first time that I really realised, oh, we can't get off this island. Like, you know, it, I, it was this sense of being completely trapped um, by the water. And, and I suppose when you grow up in an again, when you grow up in an area like that, and we lived by Inshtani, and my father was always telling us, you know, you, you have to respect nature and you have to respect the sea and the sea gives, but it takes away. And and I suppose when, you, when you're hit sometimes, you know, I suppose by the reality of what it means uh, to live in such an isolated area, that it doesn't matter what sort of technology or, you know, what modern advancements there are, like that, that 
nature in and of itself is the most powerful force um, that exists. So there was just a few different things that I kept sort of coming back to and, and playing around with. And, and I thought, yeah, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to set it. Um, I'm going to set it on an island. Um, and, you know, I suppose as well as that kind of Agatha Christie, you know, the closed door um, narrative, you know, that mm. like you're on a train or you're in a country house in the middle of a snowstorm and it's like, no one can get on, no one can get in, no one can get out. So it has to have been someone here who did it. Um, mm. So I thought that like there, the an island really is like the ultimate form of that. I was I was really thinking of that, the Agatha, Agatha Christie situations on the the idea of the of the island, particularly in the storm and the the ferry not being able to go either, either way on the night of the of the incident. And it's and yeah, it, it's really fascinating. Then you found like, did you find that? I suppose did you um, when once you decided you were going to set it on an island? Did you start researching what how islands have been treated in Ireland or how what island life has been and how islanders have felt? Um, I, I did. Um, mm. I, I suppose actually this book, I think I, I did the most research that I've ever done with any novel because there were so many different strands to it. You know, there was island life. There was, you know, the domestic abuse and coercive control angle. Um, there was also, I suppose, just the the fact of like the murder. How would that happen? How would the Garda investigation go? How long would the legal process take? You know, like what would the what would the anonymity be like? You know, I, I spoke to the former state pathologist of Ireland to like get her take on, you know, what what would her role in that have been? Um, so I think like the, the research was enormous to the point where I was like, okay, for the next book now, I'm just going to write something <laughs> about, I don't know, a, a, a writer in her mid-30s who lives in a small town in Ireland, you know, um, that requires no research whatsoever. Um, but the island um, aspect of it, I did find really interesting. You know, my our next door neighbours here... Um, it, my we moved to this house when I was four, and the family next door had two girls as well. One who was two months older than my sister, and one who was two um, months younger than I was. So we sort of instantly became best friends. And um, and I used to sort of dread the summers because they would go to Inishir. Um, they would take a house in Inishir for about a month. Um, and when we were teenagers, my best friend Anya. It kept going like she would she loved in a shear and she would go out in a shear um every summer for as long as she could and she actually ended up meeting um her now husband uh who is from Inishman um and they live in they live in Galway so I've never quite forgiven him um for taking <laughs> her away but it's funny um so I suppose there were you know so I was she would have told a lot of stories about what, what it was like to be on the island and I suppose she was almost like kind of accepted as one of them you know mm. by the end um and I would uh, Bertie her husband is is so interesting because you know I would re I would ask him loads of questions you know I'd be like well what was this like and 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 he doesn't think it's interesting at all because obviously <laughs> if you've grown up you just think it's so normal and why would anyone care about this um whereas I'm, I'm always just tormenting him like asking him like just questions about like his childhood and, and what it was like and you know and he's a he's a fisherman and you know what was that like and and he he tolerates me, but um, <laughs> uh, so I suppose I you know so I obviously I spoke to him. I spoke to um, Anya's one of Anya's uh, closest friends, and in the Sheer, I spoke to someone from um, the Aaron Moore. I spoke to a couple of people from Cape Clear. Um, I spent a good bit of time on Cape Clear. Um, because I suppose physically that was the island that was closest to Inishroon, mm. um, and I did a lot of reading because you know I wanted I suppose 
just to get a sense of what the islands were like in the 70s and the 80s and um and you know but obviously Keelan um would have been a child at, at that point um and you know when did the Irish colleges um start up and when uh did they get first get electricity and 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 just I suppose to as you said there Abdarak that idea of the way in which they were treated um and how so often that they needed an advocate um and that would tended to have been the parish priest um and I I just I found it really really interesting because it did feel like I suppose a world apart from Ireland itself um, and, you know, I would have read a lot of um, Eilish Dillon um, as a child. And, and I remember I, I did um, a module in children's literature um, in in college. My parents were thrilled and like, we're doing picture books this week. They're like, oh, that's a great use of our money. <laughs> you enjoy that. Um, but um, I remember, you know, the lecture talking about Eilish Dillon and saying that, you know, the way in which um, she describes the relationship between Ireland and the offshore islands can often be looked at as almost like a microcosm of the relationship between Ireland and um, the UK or between Ireland and England. Mm. And I suppose, again, I thought that was really interesting, tying into those concepts of that post-colonial tension. Um, there just seemed to me like there was a lot of really rich material that I could play around with. Um, and I think as an author, that's kind of, that's always what you're looking for. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because we actually mentioned in our recent episode where we talked about Peg, obviously there was a lot of discussion about islands there and we talked about post-colonialism as well. And I think it's actually, from what I understand from what you're saying, it's it's actually kind of connected, I suppose, to the post-colonial relationship we talked about between, I suppose, Dublin-based Irish or the attitudes Mm. that we have about Irish and then it being part of an old way of life versus Mm. people who say lived on the Blaskets like Peg did and who spoke that way and how people in power shall we say and people in like urban centres just didn't understand or didn't respect the way of life of people so it became sort of Mm. like a joke that um, Mm. you know Peg is a joke or um, do we have a Peg jar for me for every time I mention Peg? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was actually I was on the Blasket Islands um, this summer and we got a tour and it was actually really interesting you know when he was talking about I suppose how the storytelling tradition was so strong in these islands because mm. so often the the schools that were there were were they were forced to to learn through you know through English yeah mm-hmm. and again I suppose there's that kind of resentment almost you know and um, I'm I'm studying I mean I'm trying I'm taking Irish lessons um at the moment That's fantastic Oh, Jesus. Anyway, we'll, we'll see. Um, and, you know, there is kind of a sense of I probably I shouldn't really have to learn this, mm. you know, mm. like I should know how to speak this language. And, you know, you don't want to be it's 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 very interesting because I think for years I really I, I do think there has been a shift over the last while. Because I think that when I was a teenager, like the idea of even nationalism or sort of like caring about being Irish or speaking Irish in that way was not really a thing do you know mm-hmm. um, and I think it's even fascinating to see it as the shift in way young, in the way that let's say a young Irish people view Sinn Féin which would have been very different to yeah. how I would have sort of been brought up to see it mm-hmm. um, and I don't know so it's, I suppose it would never really have occurred to me to have felt resentful over the fact that I couldn't speak Irish um, and that has definitely, I think, been something new. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I do think it's it's probably been heightened when you, I think, 
a, a lot of the rhetoric around um around Brexit was yeah. this sort of like, will the Paddies please just you know, know their place and, and settle down a bit and sort of do what they're told. And I think it's sort of, um, there's probably, you know, like that idea of like inherited trauma or like, yeah. you know, ep- epigenet- epigenetics. I'm like, it's probably just there, like deeply buried within my DNA. And now all of a sudden it's kind of rearing its ugly head. Yeah, because we actually talked about something, or, 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 I think we talked about it in the podcast a while back, Derek, something similar about this and how there was like, do you, um, I, I remember being, because I, I went to UCC and I was in Cork at the time that the Queen came to visit and that was probably yeah. like the height of like Anglo-Irish relations. Mm. It was really, she was really yeah. popular. The whole feckin' city shut down. Like I couldn't get in or out of University Hall because mm. there was a motorcade. It was, yeah, madness. But it's, yeah, to see a so change, like... I think that was around 2011. I remember yeah. it was a, f- a few days before or after Barack Obama came and people were saying it was a bigger deal. And because we, you know, we'd had lots of presidents by about that stage yeah. in living memory and visit. But then, it, and people, you know, like, you know, they were sharing online that this is the proudest day for being Irish ever. And they were saying, you know, very unguarded things. And people were very affectionate towards the royal family and Britain in general. And we felt we, we, we had come on a hard journey. But, mm-hmm. And then Brexit made us realise that was a one-sided journey, I suppose, for a lot of people and that there hadn't been a similar kind of um, uh, inner reflection. And Mm. I think it was so I do think possibly the sense of embarrassment at how proud we were, you know, opening up to to the UK may have may have led to some of the the acceleration of anti of maybe critical feelings towards Britain at the, yeah. or England certainly it's anyway and West Cork famously has had a large um, English population mm. of English often maybe who who see themselves as, as creative and hippie-ish and don't yeah. see themselves as <laughs> and don't see themselves as part of a, of an English mindset Yes, I mean, that is very funny. Um, we knew what gentrification was before anyone else did. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's very funny. Like, you know, I, I was in the supermarket a, a while back and I, I actually put it into the book because it made me laugh so much. And there was this, they were sort of young, quite posh, you know, English, and they were wearing like hunter wellies and these sort of tweed capes. Mm-hmm. And it just made me, It just honestly, I just thought, thought like, I wonder, do you wear those at home or are these your Irish clothes? <laughs> <laughs> I know, like I mean, you're like, oh, we're back in the old country now, but I put on the tweed, you know, and and uh, it just there's something about it that's very funny, and but yeah, no, I suppose, and actually, I think that was one of the reasons, in a very strange way, why with um, Sophie, that you know, with Sophie's death, mm-hmm. that it was such a a hard thing to reckon with as well, because actually, I think when you grow up in I keep saying when you grow up in an area like West Cork, but, you know, that's, I suppose, stuff that I'm dealing with in the book. But you are sort of taught, whether consciously or not, that there's a certain way that you behave in front of foreigners or blow-ins or particularly tourists, you know, that mm-hmm. they, yeah. you know, like it's really like the Cade Mille Falta and you have to sort of be very friendly and very welcoming. And, you know, because I think that money was always so important you know particularly before like you know in the like before this was the celtic tiger really sort of exploded um so there was a sense of i suppose having to be 
having to be nice or, you know, having to sort of put on that face a bit um, and sort of play the part. Um, and I think that, you know, it was so shocking then when someone who has come here and had thought of West Cork as a refuge and had chosen it as um, as someone to, as somewhere to sort of use it as a retreat um, to see something so horrifying happen here. And, you know, ultimately I have no idea, you know, who murdered her. Um, but I suppose it is striking in a way that, that the person that people decided very quickly, you know, was the person responsible, wasn't someone from the area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I wonder in a way, you know, whether rightly or wrong, again, I have to reiterate, I literally haven't, I mean, I, I haven't, and I don't have any theories. I, I really don't. And, and I think even listening to the podcast made me realise how little I knew about something yeah. I thought I knew a lot about. But, you know, I wonder in a way, is there, is it easier, you know, to to see this as something that only happened with outsiders, you know, that, that it wouldn't, it couldn't have happened um, with people who grew up in that area. I don't know. Um, but it, it did strike me, I suppose. Um, it just struck me as, as interesting. Um, yeah. But, you know, West Cork has always been a really popular um, place for, as you said, hippies and, uh, and artists, you know, whether that was, I suppose, them wanting solitude or wanting to take advantage of um, the tax <laughs> situation <laughs> here. Um, you know, I don't know. And, but I've, and I, and the thing is, is that I've always loved that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I always thought there was like, my parents would have gone, would have been, even though they're not creative, would have been friendly with a lot of those people. And, you know, they would have told very funny stories coming home after parties and being, you know, saying that this had happened or, you know, someone had been smoking this or, you know, Mm -hmm. and it always, I suppose it just, it just struck me as, I I don't know. I I think I was kind of enthralled by it. Um, And in a way, a lot of, as I got older and I wanted to become a writer, I think a lot of, I, I actually had to struggle with that sort of sense of, but that's not for people like me. You know, that's for those people the kind of the bohemians you know the ones who live on cool mountain the ones who live off the grid and grow their own yeah. food and their own weed and their own whatever you know that's not really for the likes of us um so i suppose it's interesting you would think that maybe growing up and being around um a lot of of creative people that like, you would think that it would have given me a sense of permission um and in mm. a way i think i have to almost fight against that but I think that's a really interesting point because myself listening to the West Cork podcast and then reading your own work is there's such this, there is this idea of the 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 blow-in is such a huge thing. And, and again, being from rural Ireland, okay, we didn't have very many people from like outside of the country living in Timahoe, but there was a lot of people who were like from Schlieve Bloom and they're considered blow-ins. You know, my mum has been living in my village for most of her life, but is still considered a blow-in because she's from a different part of Leash, you know? Yeah. And those things, those distinctions are so important. So, like, even though you're surrounded by those people, there's still an inevitable us and them narrative, I think, working because mm. that, like you said, that's for diff- those different people yeah. who are creative and have permission. But you have, again, coming from rural Ireland, that sort of, that way of life that is more associated with the things that we do rather than the mm. things that they do. Mm. Yeah. And it's funny because my parents were like, yeah, of course, be an actress, be a writer, do whatever you want. You're great. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. What, I, maybe I should become a teacher. And they're like, no, you'd be terrible at that. This <laughs> <laughs> is so funny. Like every, everyone else's parents are trying to get them to get a pensionable job. But mine, they're like, you'll be fine. <laughs> mm. 
Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Porig, and we host the Behavioural Vaccine Podcast. We're behavioural scientists who met through improv comedy. And so each week, we bring the two things together to explore how behavioural science can be applied, but in a fun way. There's a little bit of research. There's a good bit of messing. And there's loads of practical tips on everything from how to save money to how to maintain your friendships. Think about this like a behavioural vaccine to get you through winter 2020. Go on, sure, give us a listen. So it is interesting the way that I know when you were coming from a town when with that when there has been a very famous I guess a murder or missing person case and how every every new thing that happens is, is, is somehow linked to it. The I guess the way a community kind of kind of tries to process this something that that's terrible that's happened is oh um, people fill yeah fill those gaps with um, with terrible things they fill the gaps with their own prejudices and their own um, anxieties. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was actually very interesting listening to the podcast when they were saying about how, you know, because I, I suppose people are afraid as well. But I think this idea of people almost using it as a way to settle all scores yeah. and sort of whispering rumours into the, I mean, you you wouldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of idea of saying, oh, that person has wronged me or this person, you know, uh, I, I don't know, like offended me in this way. So I'm going to like suggest to a guard that they like it's just it sounds like I don't know Stalinist Russia or something mm-hmm. like it just is it's really wild um and I suppose you know in after the silence like I really wanted to explore that because I think what is so fascinating I suppose about the Sophie Tascon the Plantier case is I mean obviously the fact that it's unsolved and nobody knows you know the truth of what happened that night um except for you know whoever murdered her um but I suppose to have the person that people suspect to be the murderer still living in the mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. Um, I, there was some. I mean, that is fascinating. Like, how do you process that? If if it was a member of your family, you know, I mean, um, Sophie's son comes back um, every summer um, and stays in the house and you know yeah. goes to school and and you know and it's like how how would you how would you even begin to to really cope and to heal um, if you have to, I suppose, be confronted with the person you suspect has done this. Um, and especially when it's such a small knit community, because I think the thing is about living in a very small community is that there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance that has to happen in order to exist alongside your neighbors. Like, you know, you, you know, certain things about people um and some of them are unpleasant um but if you see that person in the supermarket and they say hello i think there's also a a level of how much effort is sort of you know you just kind of say hi and keep going um and i think there's something really in that mindset again i find really fascinating um and i just thought when i was put when i was um, basing it on that island i was like yeah i'm just going to make sure that the person that everybody on the island thinks has done this is going to still be living there 10 years later and while her family and her loved ones are trying to um like heal and process um, her murder that they're also i suppose trying to deal with like their anger and their fury directed at this person and a sense of like why won't you just leave like why won't you go yeah. No, I think that's really interesting in terms of, again, these these because the relationships in in small communities. And I think you do it really well in your other books as well, like that that explore these themes that like 
uh, again, I was listening back to um, asking for it uh, over the week before this. And like it, even the way that people talk to each other, it's just so relatable. <laughs> like, you know, the way that people are kind of slightly awkward around each other and not saying anything, but saying everything at the same time. It's just because, again, like you said, you have to live around these people. You are mm. going to bump into them. It's not like you're living in a city where you're not going to see that person again anytime soon. You know, it's it's a small area. You will bump into that person probably in the next few days, you know? A hundred percent. And actually, I think, you know, with asking for it, um, I suppose that was very much based on, you know, having conversations with my friends when we were Mm -hmm. 16 or 17 and saying, you know, what would you do if you were raped? And most of us saying, oh, I just don't think I would do anything. And actually the reason was, was because like you would see them, you would see them all the time and you'd be going to parties and they'd be there. And then of course, what would end up happening is that you wouldn't get invited to the parties because their friend was throwing it or, you know, because people move Mm -hmm. on very quickly as well and people forget, Um, but you're still, I suppose, trying to deal with the the trauma and you're still holding that trauma. Um, And sometimes I think in, in a small town, you just want life to be easy yeah. Um, and it's not worth sometimes having like a disagreement with someone or a row with someone because of the sense of, of the energy that it's going to take to ignore them in the supermarket, to bump into them, you know, at, at church or at, sorry, at mass or at the in the pub or at, at you know, the local football game or whatever. Yeah. Um, so to me, I think it's a sense of living so closely with each other. Um, and what does what kind of cognitive dissonance does it take in order to to do that, to know certain information and to be able to, I suppose, put it aside in whatever way that you can in order just to to live? Yeah. And particularly, it's funny that you say that, like when you say there's I mean, at least in, in my community anyway, there's, you know, the families that have had a feud, usually it's over land and like a brother yeah. doesn't talk to another brother. And like that just seems exhausting, you know, because they've been keeping that up for like, what, 40 years. Um, mm. I mentioned before we came on air that my dad's a postman and he said that it's a very different kettle of fish. Like when you're delivering post in a town, it's numbered houses. But when you're delivering post in a, you know, a rural area, you need to know all of the back roads, who has a vicious dog and what family mm. is feuding with what family, because they likely mm. have the same address and maybe they're both yes. like P.O. Sullivan like Pat and Paul but you need to know which is going to Pat and which is going to Paul because you know they're never getting the post if they're having a feud. Oh my god that is so <laughs> funny I, yeah. I, I do love though the Irish postal system like I find it whenever like an English um, publisher will say oh they want to send me a book and I'm like okay here's my address and they're like oh you forgot your house number and I'm like oh god I feel like you're saying listen you could put Louise O'Neill trying to kill Ireland on it and it will get there because I'm the only Louise O'Neill who lives here so like it's going to be fine don't worry about it and they're yeah. like oh you know it's back and forth like oh you know the, the UPS really needs the house number I'm like I don't have one I'm sorry <laughs> yeah until we got those air codes did, did we all just make up a post a postal code for I mean, zero, zero, on, zero, like. yes, zero exactly though I will say like the air codes are amazing yeah I mean, they, are, they are amazing it's, it's such a brilliant system it took me a while to kind of get into it because I was like how dare they try and put like a postcode and then I was like oh no, this is actually really useful so yeah. I got on board it's so funny that they they come up with this with this, with with our code they had to work out a system that that wouldn't affect property prices because they knew that if you actually had um, postcodes that had little blocks of areas in them it would affect you know oh, people, really? people yeah people, this, that, this is the big that. reason because of Dublin 4 and Dublin 6 and the idea yeah. that you have you have a lot of people 
you have a lot of people in like in yeah and in, in maybe in, in, in Dublin 18 who, who put down W6W and people in Dublin 6W see their Dublin 6 and and they were worried that having, doing that on a national scale like are you in leash for or are you you know <laughs> oh, and, that is and, so interesting <laughs> I never that, knew that. And that's why, so like, I mean, you have fairly random numbers. The, in Dublin, you still have the the first kind of digits of the of the traditional postcode. And then they go go from that for everywhere else. It's mm. largely a random number, two houses yeah. next to each other. Their, post, their air code's completely different. Fun times. Speaking of English publishers, uh, Louise, I have, <laughs> I'm, I'm published by a by Hedda Zeus here in, in London and I know from having um, the, the editing process and I've had great insights and I don't think people thank sub editors uh, enough for the work they do but sometimes I remember at one point there was um, uh, there was I made a reference to James Connolly and there was a little note from uh, one of the sub editors that said can, can you put a footnote in here to explain who this person is for you English readers and I was like what do you mean who's James Connolly? <laughs> James Connolly is James Connolly. But it's, it's particularly sometimes with Hiberno English with turns of phrase. Yes. Um, sometimes there can be an interesting dialogue. Yes. Oh, there has been frequently. Um, oh, God. And she's so, I mean, she's brilliant. She's meticulous. Like, mm-hmm. she's really, really good at what she does. Um, and we have a really good relationship. And I, I, I just have so much time for her. But sometimes it is very funny because, as you said, there is a certain way of like saying things like, oh, you know, I will, yeah. Or, you know, like things like that that you put in. And she's like, well, will they or what I don't I don't get this and you're trying to explain to her like what this means or I remember um in Almost Love I think it was like they were going to the mart and she was like uh, what's the mart and I was just trying to explain <laughs> what's that what's the mart <laughs> yeah um and I'm trying to think oh yes with this one um Keelan is talking to her two best friends um Sean and Johanna um and she says lads and she's like oh lads I don't know what I'm gonna do and I got a little note back saying um she says lads here but she is also talking to Joanna who is a woman is this okay and I was like yes it's fine it's fine (laughs) so there was definitely things like that and also what actually was very interesting with this book was obviously there's quite a bit of Irish um Mm. sprinkled through it so I couldn't like I my friend um Treylock who I mentioned earlier um who is just a wonder and who was incredibly helpful like I would go back and forth with Treylock and I would say how do you say this is this okay what about this and then he um, proofread it for me and because I knew obviously I, I would need someone who had Irish to, yeah. to proofread those um, parts of it but I mean, a part that I even found quite confusing was um, do you know I suppose the idea of let's say a hula one or then ni hula one mm. Um, mm-hmm. you know and I was trying to kind of get my head around it and I had to get him to go through that really carefully with me because obviously then you know the copy editor is like but why does she have a different surname to her father like what's you know so you're trying yeah. to sort of explain like I, I and I had to get that very straight in my head as well um, and to get that spelling perfect you know so that like you know with the H or with the whatever that was sort of put in um, that, that that was perfect so that, so that I could say to her look just don't correct any of the Irish because that is mm. that that's right at this point. Okay, that that is absolutely right. So I think that obviously added maybe another um, layer of uh, of difficulty for her with with this book. Um, but uh, yeah, so because this was the first one, I think you know there was a little bit in um, asking for it when she's doing her Irish classes, but nothing yeah. nothing major. Um, but this was the first time where. I suppose, you know, uh, Keelan has been brought up in an Irish speaking mm. um, household. So I just thought it, it would make sense 
it wouldn't have made sense not to have included any, do you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And actually it was quite funny because I got a very good review in, I think it was the Daily Mail, I can't remember. And then they said something about, but sometimes the Irish feels very tacked on. And I just thought, mm. what the fuck are you like? <laughs> and it really, it really pissed me off because I just thought, I say, just because you don't understand what it means doesn't mm. mean it's just tacked on. Yes. Like, you, you can be on the podcast anytime. <laughs> it just, it really, and it's funny because normally, like, I don't really read reviews anymore because mm. I just don't think they're for me. Um, but someone had sent me this and they were like oh this is a really good one and and I just read it and I read that bit and I just thought god that's really ignorant Mm. I just thought it was because like it it wasn't I don't know I suppose because I've been so careful with the Irish and wanting it to seem really natural and just the idea that oh it was it was a bit tacked on I was like no this is exactly how you know I have family who um, my aunt-in-law is um is from Ballyfurter and would have you know would have been brought up uh, in an Irish-speaking household, like her mother actually would have, yeah. wouldn't have the best English, you know, like as in it was really, that's all they spoke um, when they were kids. So I have also seen the way they kind of go in and out of English and Irish when they're talking to each other. And, and you know, they will mostly speak Irish and then there'll be a sentence in English and they don't even know that they're doing it. Do you know that sort of, and I'm sure you probably have the same experience where <laughs> it's just kind of in and out and they're not even aware half the time when they're speaking one or the other, I think. Um, and to me, I think I really wanted that to be part of just of, of Keelan's character and the way that she would she would use a phrase here or she would use something here and when that when she was remembering her parents in particular that they would have spoken to her in Irish so it was important that I had like a couple of phrases you know not tacked on <laughs> but you know interwoven through the narrative in a way that felt I suppose um, authentic to me it's funny I remember when my first book was coming out uh, and Lisa Cohen was talking to me uh, our mutual friend and she said you know Derek you, you, you know, people will say very nice things about your book but one review will have one ignorant comment and it'll be all you remember yeah yeah <laughs> and it's and it- I try, that's honestly, Derek, that's the reason why I don't read them at this point, Mm -hmm. because um, you do sort of zero in. And I feel really bad because that was a very, it was a very good review and it's always wonderful to be reviewed. And Mm -hmm. I actually, I I really, I'm always so grateful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think maybe that if it had been a criticism of characterization, I think I mightn't have taken it as personally, but it just felt very again maybe it was that post-colonial kind of pushing Mm. that button you know I just was like how dare you um but uh but yeah I tend not to read the reviews and I I've stopped I did in the beginning and then I think I just stopped and I I just felt like they're not for me um I can't do anything now I, I I'm very open like I'm really good with engaging with criticism when I'm editing um but once it's published I can't change anything about yeah. it um and there's just no point and also I think you really begin to realize that like it's just one person's opinion mm-hmm. um, and if it had been another reviewer you could have got either a much better review or a much worse review um and I think that once you can sort of begin to distance yourself a little bit from it um it's it's much healthier and I remember getting upset about a review once that I felt really just didn't understand um it was about almost love and I really felt like it just didn't get the book and I remember my dad saying to me you know he was like you've been really lucky with reviews up until now you know I think it was the first time I'd ever had anything sort of negative and he said he was like you know, Louise if you believe the good ones you have to believe the bad ones as well so he said you're just better off mm-hmm. not reading any of them he said because it's other people's opinions and you've written the book you've done the work 
And he said, it just let it, you just have to let it go. And it was very wise advice. And it has been so much more comfortable with this book, not reading the reviews and not like looking for, not looking out for them and not, you know, like Googling the book's name to sort of see what people are saying. Um, it's honestly made the whole process so much more pleasant. Um, so I think that's definitely what I'm going to do um, moving forward as well. Ah, oh, that's really good life advice though, like, you know, not yeah. to let. I remember going to an event and Borak Harrington was there and he said that when he's doing a, a golf, right? That's what he does, yeah? Um, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was doing the golf and when he, he's golfing, he doesn't read anything about himself because he like, he likes to set his own narrative. So like yes. the only thing influencing what he does is his own um, actions. Yeah. Oh, that was really cool. Um, I, I should work on trying to do that in my in my life. <laughs> it's a shame in some ways that you, you, you'd like to be able to give some of the very, the, the nice things people say, the incur- you know, the attention that the negative things, but you're, you're dead right. Just focus on, on getting, getting yeah. things right yeah. for yourself. And, and, yeah. and there's plenty of other stuff to read, particularly when you're researching next book. Um, some people say research is a form of procrastination. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, I can't. Well, I know when I'm starting something, I mean, I will find any excuse. Like I was started a, a new book recently and I was outside and my mother called to see me and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm airing my winter coats. And she's like, why? And I was like, because I'm starting a new book and I really don't want to do any work in it. And she was like, you're so weird. And I was like, just, I don't want to talk about it. Just give me love, okay? Airing your winter, that's a new one. I, I haven't done that. I procrastinated a lot, but airing your winter coats. They were very musty, okay? I they believe you. An I believe you. <laughs> Um, just what you were saying there earlier, Derek and Louise, about um, Hiberno English. Like, it's such a. Uh, I listened to the West Cork podcast actually this summer. I hadn't heard it before uh, with my boyfriend who's not Irish. And like, there was a lot of things where, particularly the blow in thing, where they like spent a lot of time explaining the blow in thing. And I was like, they didn't explain it right. And then I explained it to my boyfriend in like my language. But I, I was actually, it was this, it was just Christmas gone. I was in. Um, the airport in Helsinki and I saw some of your books translated into I think it was actually Swedish not Finnish but I was just wondering like I wonder how the Hibernian English and the Turner phrases is actually handled there because even things like again I have been just listening to um asking for it and there's a whole discussion about like watching the late late and I was like how do you translate mm. the late late and the cultural mm. institution of the late late into another language like I wonder mm. you know how that goes um, I mean, it is interesting when they're being translated. Like, you know, um, Foreign Rights for After, The Silence haven't been um, sold yet. Yeah. And I am very curious. I'm actually very curious to see what happens there because I do think it's probably one of my strongest books and I'm sort yeah. of looking now to see if there will be a reluctance to do it because it's so Irish or because of the yeah. Irish um, language through it. But I know what some of the others... Um, particularly like because obviously you know you don't really get asked when they're doing the foreign editions like you know they like because it's such an art form when they're translating it yeah it is yeah yeah, like it genuinely is because they have to you know it's not just like a direct translation because you have to make the book interesting like they're Mm. rewriting it basically you know um, in, in their language but I have found that when they've been translated in the states like I've I've actually found that almost more interesting, and um, because of the manner, 
just the way that they approach it, you know, there's a lot of, it's actually quite, it's kind of condescending and towards American people because they'll say things Sorry, like... Sorry, so they like translated into like American English? Is that what you mean? Yeah, like, you know, wow. there things like, uh, there would have been, let's say now with the, the GA selector, you know, yeah. and they're like, okay, we're going to put it as a scout. And I just said, look, I, I, I can't. I said, my dad will actually... <laughs> presenter you know let's say with the late late the presenter they were like oh, host and there were things like that I was like okay grand but some of it you just feel like saying you know let's say there's a, a, a car park and they're like oh um, we have to put a parking lot or there's a footpath and they're like oh we have to put you know the pavement and ah, I'm like come on. they're nah. not stupid <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I just think and it's also what really frustrates me as well is that we consume so much American yeah. literature we consume so much American television and those allowances are not made for us because mm. obviously there is an understanding that we will comprehend what's happening, like the context of whatever the the way the word is used or... We'll work out what bangs are. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Yeah. You know, or like the sweater <laughs> and the jumper and you know, all of those things. And like, it's just, it, to me, that felt very, I suppose it was just this, I think I was like, I think you're really underestimating American readers' intelligence because I'm pretty sure that they'll be able to understand what a car park is. Like I think it's within the word itself. Like it's fairly, it's fairly self-explanatory. Yeah. Um. So so I did find that. Um. I did find that really interesting. But actually, the book I'm writing at the moment is uh is, has is American. Like it's set in America. It's got an American protagonist. Um. And. It, it is, you know, because actually what I'm finding really interesting and I have um, a very close friend of mine is American and I said to her already, I'm like, I'm going to need you to read this because I said most of the stuff I'm OK with, because again, having listened to a lot of, you know, we we watch American television, you know, mm. we, we listen to American podcasts. So I said, I, I feel like a lot of the language I'm OK with um, and also having lived in New York, you know, I think you you get very used to saying things like sweater or you know because they just won't you know like particularly I worked in fashion so let's say if I said um like suspenders you know that would mean a very different thing yeah. to me than it would to them or like if I said a jumper that would mean a very different thing you know so you kind of get used to you like you saying trash can instead of the bin or mail you know so I, I think I got quite used to using certain terminology because it was just easier rather than having to explain um and but actually I, th- I said the thing that I'm concerned about is the hiberno English like is this sort of slight turn of phrase or the way that you would structure a sentence um because I know even with my first novel which was dystopian and wasn't set it was kind of set in nowhere really you know kind of a a a wasteland of maybe what Europe has come to be in sort of you know hundreds of years um and like my editor who was Irish would pick up certain things and she'd say oh you know that's actually quite an Irish phrase or that's kind of quite an Irish way of structuring that sentence um so to me that's probably the, the thing that I'm most concerned about not necessarily the vocabulary but just the way in which we mm. speak and the, and the 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 rhythm of the language um that I think I'm just gonna have to pay a little bit more attention to just to make sure that there's nothing too jarring in there yeah it is such a thing like you don't realize like what's you know we live in a, a a bubble with it sometimes I remember I was at a conference a few years ago and I was sitting beside a, a a woman from the UK who taught interpreting in Spain and she was saying that when they got Irish students over 
she was always like found the Hiberno English working with it really difficult. And she mm. said she was talking about she was like, oh, they always they never know the opposite of um uh, to to plug in something. And I was like, what do you mean? It's plug out. And she was like, yeah, they all say that. And I was like, wait, what's the word? I was like, I don't know what the correct one is. And she was like, unplug. And I was like, what? what? Is plug out not a thing? And she was like, no, no, it's not correct English. And I was like, mm, I'll, I'll argue that one. <laughs> well, I think I think at this point, I mean, the, the European Union needs to cop on. We're the ones who decide what's proper English now. now. Yeah. <laughs> us and the Maltese, it's up to us now. <laughs> Before we wrap up, Louisa, we love to ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is. Um, you know, it's funny because, again, with after the silence, um, they wanted to do like a little, I, there was a, um, like a, a book tour thing that I was a part of and they wanted to do a glossary of the Irish words. Okay. And most of them were fine, you know, you're like, but um, it was really interesting trying to explain what like plumos means, <laughs> you know, like it's such a plumoser. And when I was trying to explain it and it was so funny because obviously I don't speak Irish um, fluently, you know, I'm, I'm taking classes with Gwell Culture and they're brilliant, but because um, I really do want to be able to have just to, like, I would love to have like a five-year-old's grasp of Irish, you know, that kind of, I'm not like looking to be fluent, but sort of like a really uh, kind of that level. But it's actually, it was the first time where I could say to someone, oh, there's not really a direct translation, yeah. you know, and I, it was something about that that made me feel like I was part of a club, you know, it was like, oh, there's not really a direct translation in English, but I just love that word, like, because it's one of those ones, you know, that you, I suppose there's a few ones as well, like, I love Flahulok as well, you know, there's the, <laughs> certain ones that maybe that just would have been part of that, the way that we would have spoken at home, um, but like, don't be promosing me and don't be, yeah. you know, I just... I, I absolutely adore that word. Yeah, I love Irish words like that. I'm working with my own work at the moment with the creator uh, in Schlieveen. Yeah, and like amazing. they're so hard to. Try. I'm like I'm trying really hard to explain it for a non-Irish based reader and it's so hard because they're so much better in Irish, you know. The, the English yeah. translations just don't do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And obviously the, the, the setting of your island in rune. Rune is a fantastic word. Yeah, I mean, it was so funny because, like, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, that'll sound great now to the um, to the English. And then you're like, oh, but all the Irish will be like, oh, for God's sake, Islands of Secrets. <laughs> this one, she's so lame. <laughs> but, particularly because it can mean promise or secret or love. Yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's got it all. It's, it's just a great word. It's oh, well, thank you, Derek. I will keep that for future interviews and pass that off as my own opinion. <laughs> Good stuff. And how, how's, how's the old Gale culture going? I, do you know what? It's really, I mean, it's quite humbling because I am very poor at it. Um, and there's this, there's, a, you know, a few people in the class, um, a couple of Americans who are very good at it, which mm. again is annoying. Even though I, <laughs> I mean, very annoying, but I keep going like, but my accent is definitely better. Like, they might know all the vocab. You know, like, I'm so... I'm so petty, like it's terrible. Um, but um, no, I am. I'm. I am really enjoying it. Um, and I don't know. You know, it was one of those things. I think because of writing after the silence, um, and having to ask Traylock for, you know, with help with the translations, and he would send me these voice messages. You know, um, explaining certain words or you know saying, oh, I think you should use this phrase, and. It, it just used to sound like music, you know, coming from his mouth. And I just thought, oh, God, I really wish that I could 
I really wish that I could speak this. I wish that I had, you know, kept it up after school and that I hadn't just been so relieved to, you know, do my leaving search and feel like oh, I'll never have to do this mm. ever again. And I suppose as well, you know, this year has just been the year of the staycation. And, you know, I was, you know, around Dingle and Ventry and Cape Clear and, you know, and West Cork. And, and I think you're in areas where, you know, that they are um, Gweltucks, um and it felt almost rude. You know, I felt a little bit like, you know, sometimes when you're abroad and, you, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, let's say Spain or Italy and you kind of expect people to speak English. Yeah. And I felt a little bit like that. I thought, oh God, I'm expecting people to speak English rather than making an effort to at least be able to have a very rudimentary um conversation um and you know I suppose the thing about the 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 girl culture is that like it is just about getting people talking you know they're not like there's been no mention of the Mokani look I'm very (laughs) relieved um like trauma after school um but you know as I said I just want to be able to be like you know yeah this this is who I am this is what I do this you know like just such basic just really really basic um conversation level but I don't know. It's funny as you get older, these things just start to feel more important. Um, And I don't, you know, I know having, you know, lived abroad, uh, the sense of being Irish um, Mm. and my sense of myself as an Irish person became much more important than it ever had before. Um, And I think now the the language um, has you know, I think that's because I always feel a bit weird saying that because you feel like you sound like one of those people who has like a, a tricolor, um, you know, on their <laughs> Twitter handle and is about to like launch into like a white nationalist rant or something. It's like, okay, I'm not one of those people, okay, but I just still think it would be lovely to be able to speak it. I hope it's a rewarding experience here. I really hope that you you enjoy it more than anything. Like, I mean, because I just love learning languages. I love all yeah. the people learning languages. <laughs> um, is there some voting that we can get involved with? Your book is nominated oh, for yes. some awards. We oh my God, I completely forgot about it. I was like, what voting? Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so after The Silence has been uh, shortlisted for Crime Novel of the Year um, in the Irish Book Awards. Um, yeah, no, I'm... I'm thrilled you know as I said earlier I you know next year it'll be a sports book and the year after it'll be a cookbook I'm just trying to get one in every category um, as I as I go along but it really is I have to say like the I feel really honored because um a crime particularly amongst Irish um, women writers over the last sort of like 10 years has just had this explosion like and the quality is so good so the other people in the category are amazing and I feel like a terrible imposter um, but I'm really thrilled that they've left me in for, for this year anyway mm-hmm. um, so yeah you know if you want to vote um, just go on to the I think it's on post um, the Irish Book Awards um, their website yeah. and uh, yeah you don't have to vote for me but there's loads of other great people on there as well but that was actually, do you know what? No, that was a very self-deprecating thing to say. And all, you know, I, I just feel I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do the Irish thing. I'm, I'm going to vote yeah. for me, okay? Guys, <laughs> I, it's been a tough year. I need this. Vote for Louise. She needs yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. But you're like campaign slogan for president. Vote for yeah. Louise. She needs this. <laughs> 
Um, no, that's wonderful. And we wish you all the best luck with that. Um, oh, thank you so the, much. The awards happen just before Christmas, isn't it? December. Yeah, sometimes. so it's normally like, it's normally this very fancy black mm. tie um, event. Um, but obviously this year, because everything is shit, um, that <laughs> will not be happening. So I think it's going to be a virtual. I, I actually don't really know much about how it's going to work. Um, yeah. So I'd say I would presume that they're going to let the people who've won know beforehand um, so that they can get their speeches ready or yeah. I, I honestly I don't really know um, but uh, yeah it's a pity because it is normally um, and Derek you'll know this as well like it mm. is normally it's almost like the Christmas work party you know and, mm. and for people who work alone um, and by themselves it can be a very exciting sort of overstimulating experience to be in this room <laughs> full, of, of, full mm. of all these other people um, so it's a bit of a shame because it is sort of the opportunity that you have to meet up with people that maybe you haven't seen for a while um, so yeah. it's it's a shame but look this year has just been a series of disappointments so <laughs> this is just one of them you know I'm sure you can get dressed up and sit in the good room or something for it yeah, you know God. yeah put on the yeah, well, yeah with, and I, I, at least I'll be able to wear my slippers with it um, <laughs> which, is, which is a joy we had a Guardian, you organised a virtual Rose Jolie with, uh, with Emer this year, didn't you? Uh, well, I can't take credit for that. Emer organised it and I was robbed of the victory. Like that out there. <laughs> I made a dress out of a shower curtain and I taught people how to curl their hair with a GHD, which I think is a very valid scale. But that look, is, it's fine, I'm over it. Very valid scale. I'm very impressed. <laughs> um, yeah, it's fine, I'm over it, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff so thank you so much for joining us today oh thank you so much for having me yeah it's wonderful so until the next time it's a slant from me a slant from me and a slant from me (laughs) (laughs) am I allowed for that in there yeah you are (laughs) you are indeed remind yourselves thank you so much for joining us uh, today Motherfucker is brought to you by the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks to Brian for doing our production and thanks to Kirsten Shield for doing our art. And we also want to say a special thank you to all of our patrons um, who help support this show. And if you want to contribute, you can visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash Derek. Fantastic. And our guest this week just wants to remind you one more time where you can get her books and where you can vote for her. Okay, well, the the latest book is called After the Silence, um, available in all good bookshops. Try and support a local independent one if you can. Um, and you can go and vote for the Irish Book Awards. Um, just I'd say if you Google that, you'll find it. So thank you so much. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. As in, I'm just going to say my name because I wasn't, I didn't press record. Sorry, Brian. <laughs> but, okay. um, so I'm just going to say that my name is Gerody McAvoy. Okay. Um, okay. and I'm Gerody McAvoy.